0: Special thanks to our newest sponsor,
1: Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188 and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thial Boost, which is a liquid thial precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go, 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 go. <sighs> Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to GusmerBeer.com. And thanks also to BrewNinja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BRUNINJA21.
2: And under that selection pressure, they are, each of the cells in that population would acquire some random mutations. And over time, those cells that have a beneficial mutation would take over the cultures, do take over the population. It takes a while, but you allow nature to do all the hard work.
1: This week on the show, what does 424 generations of stressed out yeast get you?
2: Hi, my name is Eugene Fletcher, and I'm the research and development lead at Escarpment Laboratories in Guelph, Ontario.
1: I think everyone listening probably has already tried brewing with kvike yeast or has at least heard about it before. And if not, before continuing with this episode, they should first go listen to your colleague Richard talk about kvike on episode 102. That said, Eugene, is there anything you want to say about what this yeast is or or why it's special?
2: Right. So kvikes are a very special group of yeast and um, we got them from Northern Europe, particularly from Norway. So, there's a lot of interest in kevaiks because they are able to ferment warm and they also have a very unique uh, flavor profile, which is why a lot of people are very excited about using this strain. So, you can have kevaiks that can ferment at, say, 30 or even at 35 degrees Celsius.
1: Escarpment Labs has been selling a variety of Kvike strains commercially for quite some time. I'm sure you've had brewers make all kinds of different beer styles with Kvike yeast, but you had quite a bit of interest from small breweries that wanted to use it to make pseudo lagers. Talk about that.
2: So um, among the Kvikes, there's one strain that's called um, a crispy. So that strain is very (laughs) interesting. A lot of people like it because you can use it to make pseudo lagers. And with that strain, so some of the small breweries use it to make light lagers. It's not, you can't quite make a lager with it, but you can make something that's close to a lager. And that is also because it can't ferment um, cold and has a very nice citrusy, a nice citrus flavor profile when it ferments warm. So for brewers that are looking to make um, very citrusy lagers, they usually go for this strain because it has the um, ability to make those, um, those flavor co- profile or those flavor compounds at um, warmer temperatures.
1: What are some of the pros and cons to using a Kvike strain to make pseudo-loggers?
2: Right. So, about the pros, yes, it's uh, a Kvike yeast, so it's able to ferment um, warm, and you can get a very clean, lager-like beer at 20 to, t- at 20 to 30 degrees. And with crispy, it's, it's able to produce a nice, um, fruity ester at um, high temperatures. But the problem with kvikes, especially in using them to make lagers, is that so even though they have a very short lag phase, they are not able to use um, all the motor trials in the wort. So you, you don't get full attenuation with, um, yeah, with these the strains of yeast.
1: And is that true for pretty much all kvike strains, or, or is it unique to this, this one?
2: It's pretty... So the kvike strains are pretty different in a lot of ways, um, and we got to see that from, the gen, uh, from studying their genomics. But for this particular strain, it really struggles to uh, reach full attenuation, and that is why we were interested in improving it, to make it better at attenuating sugars and wort.
1: Okay. So, there are other spike strains that maybe attenuate a little better than this one did? Yes. Okay. So, obviously, like you said, you're interested in improving this yeast strain's uh, attenuation. What exactly were your options for doing that?
2: (laughs) Right. So, uh, we had two options. The first one was to use uh, genetic engineering tools. But the problem with that is you need to have a good idea of what gene to engineer to make the strain better at using, um, better at using the malt sugars in, in wort. So we ruled that option out. And the second option was to use lab, um, lab evolution, where you actually force the cells to adapt to um, growing high, gravity wort, and eventually they pick up mutations that make them better at fermenting uh, wort. So, we went to that option because it's, it takes a while, but you allow nature to do all the hard work.
1: Okay, that sounds interesting. So, let's hear more about that. So, you, you call this, uh, I believe you call it adaptive laboratory evolution. Um, maybe just give us a high-level overview of how that works.
2: Great. So, with adaptive laboratory evolution, um, we essentially would expose the cells to, the e-cells to um, a selection pressure that forces them to adapt to the environment you are going them in. So the analogy I usually use is, um, it's just like a sporting event, right? Where um, cells will divide as they grow and they go through some sort of like strength, some sort of strength um, training, where they adapt to the um, conditions that you force them to adapt to. And eventually you get some winners who do well, and then you select those. All of the BAEs that we have now, as uh, a result of like, back slopping, that's the ancient brewers um, used, where they would repitch fresh wort with um, some former yeast that they used in their previous brew. And over time, they acquired the ability to use up some of the malt sugars. And now we have uh, wow. beer yeast that are able to ferment malt sugars very efficiently. And that is what makes them different from wine yeast, because wine yeast have not been put through that um, process of adapting to malt sugars so then they are not able to use up malt sugars so in that case the selection pressure we used was a um, high gravity wort where we forced the cells to ferment very high gravity wort and over time over several months we were able to select um, single clones that were able to f- that were able to ferment a lot of the maltose in the in the wort
1: why why did you so, uh, use high gravity wort at first selection pressure is that sort of a natural um, choice when you're Specifically, trying to go after better attenuation for some reason?
2: So, the reason why you use that was um, with high gravity work, as you know, it has a lot of sugar in it. And that causes the cells to go through some sort of stress called um, osmotic shock. So, with osmotic shock, the cells can actually burst because of all the sugars in there. And a way of getting around this problem is to use up the sugars very quickly. So, the cells would adapt to use up the sugars very quickly to reduce the risk of going through the osmotic shock. And in that process, they adapt the acquired mutations, they're able to use up the sugars quickly, and eventually they would be able to uh, consume a lot of the malt sugars in the world.
1: Cool. Take us a little further into the weeds. Talk us through the evolution of CRISPY. How long did it take? How did you select which cells to continue with? How many generations were required, all that kind of stuff?
2: So we started with a 17 Plato degree Plato Word and did a lot of serial dilutions or serial transfers over several weeks until so we saw an improvement in the growth rates or the ability to use up the motors in the word. So when we got to that point where they had adapted, we wanted them to even adapt further. So we increased the gravity of the word and then started transferring them into word. So then we transferred them to a 21 degree plate word, and then did a lot of serial uh, repitching over several weeks, until we saw another. We saw an improvement in growth rate, and then we still wanted them to do better, so uh, we shifted the cells or the cell cultures into a 24 degree plate word and kept repitching them over several weeks until we got to a point where um, the cells adapted and weren't adapting any further. So The whole experiment took um, 97 days and we were able to get about 425 generations out of that. And that was synonymous about um, 55 um, serial dilutions or 55 refitures.
1: Okay. 55 fermentation cycles, I guess you would say, right? As, as Graham Stewart would say.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Coming up, so instead of doing the same experiment with other yeast and waiting for four or five months to get this um, improved um, phenotype, you can use this information here and just edit the genes of other strains, and within like weeks, you could be able to improve those other strains to do what uh, like Crispy is doing.
1: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas there's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors the next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies be
0: sure to thank them for their generous support Sponsored by BSG, proud distributor of New Zealand Hops Limited, who invites you to experience Nectaron, an aromatic New Zealand hop drenched by tropical waterfalls of grapefruit, passion fruit, pineapple, and peach. Nectaron is in stock and ready to ship. So order now and unlock the delicious citrus potential of your next IPA or New England IPA. Contact your BSG sales rep with any questions or visit bsgcraftbrewing.com hops to learn more. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today.
1: Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their extreme flex beverage transfer hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that, like this show, the Exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal March 29th. District Rocky Mountain is accepting applications for the newly formed Hoppy Grandma Scholarship until March 31st. The Hoppy Grandma Scholarship honors Carmen Duran by assisting brewers with the tuition of brewing courses to help advance their careers. Details can be found in the scholarship section of the District Rocky Mountain page on the Master Brewers website. District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River April 21st and 22nd. The District Carolina Spring Social is April 29th at Beer Study Durham. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. District Michigan Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
0: Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join.
1: Now back to the show. How did you decide sort of, um, you know, which of the cells to move forward with from each of those uh, cycles?
2: So when cells grow, they divide. So you get from one cell, you get um, that cell to divide into two, and then two divides into four. So eventually, as they grow, you get a whole population of cells. And under that selection pressure, each of the cells in that population would acquire some random mutations. And over time, those cells that have a beneficial mutation would take over the cultures, to take over the population until the end of the evolution experiment. So after the 97 days, we took some part of the culture and then plated it onto agar plates containing, um, containing uh, malthus as the, as the only carbon source. So on that plate, we had several cells growing and we looked for those Cells that grew, uh, grew for cells that grew faster, so they showed us huge or bigger cells on the plate. And that was um, a signal that they were actually consuming the mouths faster, and that's why they're growing at a faster rate than the smaller ones that we saw on the plate. So we picked about 15 big colonies from the plate, and then did some um, lab-scale fermentations with those strains, and eventually narrowed down to the top-performing strain, which we moved forward. Um, in large scale brewing.
1: Cool. Uh, those, so out of those, you said it was 15 that you picked. Is that right? Is that what you said?
2: Yes, we picked 15.
1: Yeah. Was there a lot of variation among those 15 or were they all pretty performing at a, at a high level?
2: Oh, yeah, so there's a huge variation. So out of, out of the 15, we really, um, had two, that's where actually, um, able to, we only had two, um, variants that were actually, um, able to achieve a high attenuation compared to the uninvolved strain. The other 13 were very close to the original strain, so we are not interested in those. But yeah, so there was a huge variation, and we were able to identify two of them. And even after the two, we got one of them that was like the top-performing strain, and that's what we moved forward with in the experiment.
1: Okay. And, and just how much, uh, how much of a difference was there you know, from its attenuation from the original? Strain.
2: So, with crispy, um, the original crispy strain, um, so that strain struggles with using up the malt sugars. So, typically, it has an attenuation around the mid 60s, um, yeah, mid 60% or 65% around that range. But with the lab evolved strain, we're able to push the attenuation to um, the 70s, like early 70s. So, that's how much we push the attenuation with the lab evolved crispy strain.
1: How about the sensory evolution? Did Crispy 2.0 produce drastically different beer?
2: It did, like to, to a surprise, it did. So um, the general feedback we got from the sensory was that it had a very unique ester profile compared to the unevolved strain or the original strain. And another thing that, came, that ran across the um, comments that we got from the sensory was that The beer that we brewed with uh, Crispy 2.0, which is the evolved strain, was drier and more crisp than the um, original strain. Which is
1: good. That's what you were going for.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was very exciting because that's what we were aiming for. So so it was very nice to see um, a lot of people um, actually confirm that the uh, beer with the uh, Crispy 2.0 was actually drier and crisper. And this was a very blind sensory. So then we were very comfortable. Or very confident in the results we got from that sensory evaluation.
1: So, drier and maybe a slightly different ester profile, basically?
2: Exactly, yes, compared to the original strain.
1: Okay, and was that different ester profile improved or just different? Or, you know, what, what did you see there?
2: It, it was improved. So, um, the flavor profile is more intense than the beer that was brewed with the original strain. So we're still trying to figure out what um, extra compounds the strain is able to produce that's given it that unique uh, profile. But, um, and so we measured that with an analytical equipment. Which, uh, yeah. We can rely on the sensory evaluation and we could tell that the beer brewed with Crispy 2.0 was actually um, yeah, more flavorful than the uh, original strain.
1: So, what exactly do we think changed genetically from Crispy to Crispy 2.0? Right.
2: So, I should mention that with these lab evolutions, um, as the cells grow and divide and acquire random mutations, um, yeah. So, the random mutations that's that's what makes the cells um, more resistant or um, makes them more superior to the original strain. So, after every lab evolution, the next step is to sequence it or to basically read the DNA of the cells to find out what changed. So to answer your question, John, um, we saw a lot of genomic changes. So we saw that um, <clears throat> part of the genome had changed, especially um, the copy number of genes that were close to the ends of the chromosomes had changed in number. And another interesting thing we saw was that the lab evolved strain had also changed the number of um, chromosome copies, and, which was very interesting because the Genes involved in uh, maltose utilization are, or some of the genes are found close to the ends of the chromosomes. So it was nice to see that the copy number had changed, and that would explain why um, the cells were able to utilize maltose better. Uh, beyond that, we also saw um, high-impact mutations in some genes that are responsible for the uptake of maltose into the cell and the utilization of maltose within the cell. There's also changes in genes with, there's also changes in genes that were associated with uh, flocculation and ester profile and ester production which is exactly what we saw in the sensory so we saw that the ester profile was different and we could link that to this um, change in a gene called ATF1 and also with the improved strain we saw that it could uh, flocculate better than the original strain and That made a lot of sense to us because we saw some high impact mutations in a gene called um, Flo1, which is associated with flocculation in yeasts.
1: You mentioned, uh, I I guess I saw in the presentation, sort of this uh, discussion about um, the the trade-off between uh, this fast fermentation and short lag phase versus weaker multi consumption um is that true for all strains
2: um no so it's, that's that's not um, the same for all for all strains and that's because um, with lab evolution so there's a lot of random mutations that occur in that process uh-huh. so it, it depends on what genes are hit uh, by these random mutations and yeah it's usually not the same for all yeast strains if you put them under the same conditions that we did
1: okay but you definitely saw that trade-off in, with, with your results though, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. also I should mention that, yes, um, so with random mutations, with, so with a uh, lab evolution, you always get the, the traits that you want. And because there are a lot of random mutations happening, you also get uh, a lot of trade-offs, which is why we have to do uh, the sensory of brew beer with this yeast and do the sensory just to make sure that we didn't get any random mutations hit some of the flavor profile genes that would negatively impact the flavor of the yeast. So, yeah, that's something you should always check when you um, perform these uh, lab evolution experiments.
1: How might the results from this project be used to benefit other strains?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good question. So, one strength of using laboratory evolution for these experiments is you can find the key target genes that changes the yeast to perform a function that you want them to perform. And once you've identified these genes, then you can use genetic, um, then you can use uh, genome editing tools like CRISPR to fix that gene or to um, yeah replicate that gene in other yeast um, strains. So instead of doing the same experiment with other yeast and waiting for 4 or 5 months to get this um, improved um, phenotype, you can use this information here and just edit the genes of other strains. And within like weeks, you could be able to improve those other strains to do what uh, like CRISPY is doing. We saw mutations in some of the Maltus, um, Maltus utilization genes like MAL11 and MAL13. So say if you were to improve um, attenuation in another CRISPY strain, you could go, into, you, you could take that strain and then um, put that mutation that we saw in CRISPY into mild 11 or mild 13 and end up improving that strain to be able to um, achieve high attenuation like we see with um, CRISPY.
1: And that would be... Um Correct me if I'm wrong, but in that case, wouldn't you be less likely to get some of the other um, mutations as well that might have caused the difference in ester profile and whatnot?
2: Yeah, that's true, that's a very good question too. So um, usually after these experiments, you'd the next step would be um, to reinsert these mutations into the original strain Okay. To see if you get the same effects that you're seeing with yeah. the lab evolved one. So that's a way of confirming the role of uh, those mutations.
1: And Have you done that with this or no?
2: No, we haven't done that, but that's some work we are planning to do. And we understand that we can improve other strains to also behave like crispy.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay, so, so is Escarpment using adaptive lab evolution for any other projects?
2: Oh, yeah. So we've got some projects um, coming up very soon. and. Actually, one project we just finished, so we use um, lab evolution to improve um, terpene biotransformation in yeast. And, yeah, so we got some interesting strains and we had the point of sequencing those strains to find out what uh, mutations were acquired during the process of lab evolution. And with the same idea, we can also use lab evolution to improve some of our yeast strains to be more resistant to um, low pH. And we see a lot of values there, especially when it comes to using some of these strains to brew like sour beers, because you need a strain that can tolerate the low pH conditions of um, the um, sour beer um, brewing. It'd
1: be cool. That, it'd be interesting to uh, do the same thing, but for high pH, because you get a lot of these dry hopped beers where the, you know, where the, um, uh, the high pH from dry hopping it has a negative impact on yeast health. So that would be an interesting you know, problem to solve as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I hope uh, I hope we'll we'll um, have you back on the show once you've got some results published from from that work because that sounds exciting too. That was Eugene Fletcher here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want to learn more, check the show notes for a link. My fist full of courage.